Well, good morning. So welcome to class. So for those of you who uh, have not been here for a while, I am trying to get through three chapters a week. I know it's like, it's a, if you have goals, you shoot for the stars, you'll hit the moon, right? Well, we'll see what we do today. I think kind of my goal here is that uh, <clears throat> there's a, the, the Old Testament is really cool. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you crack open numbers and you start reading uh, lists of, of ca- cattle and oxen and, and, and uh, descendants, you might seem to think that the whole Old Testament is that. No, it's not true at all. 99% of the Old Testament is fascinating. It's history. It is poetry. It is wisdom. Uh, there's, there's a lot to it that, uh, and there was already a yawn, I think. So, you know, that's how it goes. That, uh, well-timed, ma'am, well-timed. That was, that was perfect. I did. Well, we can, we got, we're, we're two minutes in, and this is exactly how it goes. Well, I, you know, it's like one of your normal lectures. Sorry. That's exactly, ex- except it's more audible. So thank you for that. That's your resilience. Uh, that's right. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into reading the word. And uh, and if I could get a a, a volunteer, we're just going to start with Second Samuel four, uh, verses one to the end, which is it's fairly short. It's one to twelve. Who would like to do that for me? Today? Thank you. Sir. <laughs> I don't want one of those 56 <laughs> So They're coming, so yeah, you better jump on this. Okay, it starts right off here. When Ishbosheth, <laughs> goodness. He's balanced to the university. <laughs> Saul's son heard about Abner's death at Hebron. He lost all courage, and all Israel became paralyzed with fear. Now there were two brothers, Benah and Rechab, who were captains in Ishbosheth's raiding parties. They were sons of Ramon, a member of the tribe of Benjamin who lived in Beeroth. The town of Beeroth is now part of Benjamin's territory because the original people of Beeroth fled to Gitium, where they still live as foreigners. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephilosheth, something, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled, but as she hurried away, she dropped him and became, became crippled. I guess that's not funny. One day, Rechab and Benah, the sons of Ramon and Beeroth, went to Ishbosheth's house around noon as he was taking his midday rest. The doorkeeper, who had been sifting wheat, became drowsy and fell asleep. So Rechab and Benah slipped past her. They went into the house and found Ishbosheth sleeping on his bed. They struck and killed him and cut off his head. Then taking his head with them, they fled across the Jordan Valley through the night. When they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Look, they exclaimed to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul, who tried to kill you. Today the Lord has given my Lord, the king, revenge on Saul and his entire family. But David said to Rechab and Benah, the Lord who saves me from all my enemies is my witness. Someone once told me Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news, but I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That's the reward I gave to him for his news. How much more should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? 
So David ordered his young men to kill them, and they did. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies beside the pool of Hebron. <coughs> then they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Thank you very much. Good job. Good job out of you, dude. Come on, you're like, ah, this will be short, this will be sweet. Wait a minute. How did we get here? Let's do a quick recap. I usually do that at the beginning. Um, what has happened in the, in the first three chapters of, of 2 Samuel? Don't be shy. They've got a scramble for power in yes. the vacuum of Saul's death. Perfect. Yep, that's exactly it. So Saul is who, or was who? His former first, first king of Israel. Exactly. First anointed king of Israel. There was, a, there was a man who declared himself king of Israel during the period of the judges. He was not anointed by God. He was a thug, and he was uh, <coughs> quickly dispatched. Um, this is, Saul was the first anointed. And when I say anointed, what does anointed mean? Appointed by God. And anoint, what does anoint mean? Does anyone know? I've talked a little bit about what the root of the word anoint means. Our MCAT scholar is going to tell me what that means. No, I'm sorry, I'm kidding. I'm putting you on the spot. She's like, oh crap, I have to say something. Um, does anyone remember what anointing means? It has something to do with the oil. See, I knew she would do it. She's so brilliant. This is what I'm talking about. What did you say? Uh, it means to anoint with oil. Actually, in Greek, chreo, which is where we get Christ, means to smear with fat or oil. And what it means is you take holy and, and pure oil and, you, and you, would, you would pour it on the head or you would, you would mark it on the forehead. The, the point is that you are, you are designating something as holy and consecrated by God himself. <clears throat> and in this case, that's exactly what happened. Samuel, the last judge of Israel, anoints first Saul, a farmer, from obscurity to be the first king of Israel by God's command. And only later after Saul screws everything up, as God expected he would do, God decides to anoint a second person as king of Israel, the ruddy runt of uh, a son of a man named Jesse from Bethlehem, who is David. And now Saul, in the very end of 1 Samuel, has died at his own hand, fighting the Philistines, he has lost the war. His sons, almost all of his sons are killed. The Philistines are closing in around him. He decides to take his own life. <clears throat> and in so doing, David is now the sole anointed king of Israel. However, being anointed by God is sometimes a very different thing as being acknowledged by other human beings. <clears throat> as soon as Saul dies, it turns out he has a couple of heirs left. One is his own son, Ishbosheth. Now, I'm going to say this really quick, and again, you know, if you're in my class, and a yawn moment is coming again, I, I am convinced of it, is that the writers of the, of the Old Testament sometimes go to great lengths to not be what they perceive as unholy. What do I mean by that? Well, in the case of Matthew, Matthew, a pious Jew, goes to great lengths not to even mention the word God or the Lord. Um, he will use the Greek terms for, for pronouns and just leave it at that. And you have to understand he's talking about God because he doesn't even want to mention the word God. In the case of the Old Testament, the writer of, of 2 Samuel is going to great lengths to make sure that you know that the sons and grandsons of Saul are not related to a pagan god named Baal. Now, Baal 
is the Chaldean or Aramaic term for Lord. Okay, it means God or Lord. Now it's a it's a proper term. It means what you think it means. It means Lord, Master, Ruler. But it also came to mean the the name of a pagan god named Baal or Beelzebub. We all remember that, right? There was Baal worship in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> it was it was a horrible practice. The actual names of these these kids are probably. Ishbaal and Meribbaal. However, the author of 2 Samuel wants to make sure you know we're not talking about either pagan gods or people who worship pagan gods. So he has changed the names of Ishbaal to Ishbosheth and the name of Meribbaal to Mephibosheth. <laughs> Mephibosheth. As it turns out, Ishbosheth is one of the sons, the direct sons of Saul. What does that make him? Now that Saul's dead. Next in line. King. King. Because that's how it works in antiquity. Remember, folks, we're talking about antiquity. And remember how we got here, too, is the people of Israel cried out for a king because they saw their neighbors as having kings or pharaohs or rulers. And they, they, they thought that their countries were being run great. Everything is great in Egypt because they got a pharaoh. Things suck in Israel. They're terrible. People are hiding in caves. There's no literacy. Um, our agriculture is terrible, and we're constantly being attacked by our enemies. So, so, and there's no artisan class. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's no great culture. There's no great learning. People are literally hanging on by a thread. They're like, well, Egypt is great, dude. They got plenty to eat. They got more than enough to eat. They've got a strong military. No one beats up on Egypt. At least they think that no one beats up on Egypt. They think that everything is stable. Everything is not really stable. But that's the idea. And they're like, if we have a king, things are going to be great for us. <clears throat> One of the things that comes along with being a king in this period is it's not election. <laughs> it's not uh, vote for the, for the most popular guy. He becomes the next king. It's, it's all about a dynasty. The ruler is now the king and his house, meaning his dynasty or his family, will rule as king until there's no family left. And, and you can start to see how a lot of problems happen when kings die without leaving a successor. A direct male descendant is almost always a male. <clears throat> Who could take over in their place? If there was no direct descendant or son of the king, then someone else, like a cousin, a family member, might try and usurp the throne. In this case, it seems Ishbosheth. Remember, who is, who is probably going to be the next king of Israel if nothing else changed? If it wasn't Saul after Saul? Mm? Well, Jonathan would have been if he weren't killed. I think that the, the idea is that Jonathan was the successor. Jonathan, who was the best friend of David. Um, son of Saul, but also David loved Jonathan and vice versa. Jonathan is killed on the battlefield in the end of 1 Samuel, and he's dead. Um, it would have been it, Jonathan. It would have been uh, the other two sons as well. We're down now to Ishbosheth, and I think you can imagine that Ishbosheth, the way that the text refers to him, is either very young or very weak, not very powerful. Someone was, was controlling him like a puppet. Do you remember what his name was? And he died in the last one. Is that Abner? Abner. Abner was a general. This is very common, folks, in antiquity. Um, Someone who was like a, a tutor to the young king might start acting like the king. This happened in the time of King Tut. King Tut was probably only 12 or 13 when he died. He was younger than that when he started to rule. He wasn't in charge, folks. Tutankhamun was not in charge. His, 
his master was in charge. The guy who was tutoring him was in charge, and he ran the country. In fact, after Tutankhamun died, he was king, and there's art. And I'm going off on a tangent. You don't even care about this. <laughs> if you go to the temples of Egypt, you will find the ones that have not been wiped out because there's a lot of controversy associated with Tutankhamun. You can find art, temple art, that shows the, the vizier or the master, the, the tutor of Tutankhamun wearing the crown of the pharaoh of Egypt. He was in charge, folks. Make no mistake about it. Abner was a general. Who's in charge in antiquity? The guy with the biggest stick. The guy with the biggest stick and the most money, and usually the same. Abner was absolutely ruling. And as soon as Saul dies, there is a power struggle here. Does that sound familiar? In our modern age? Always a power struggle, folks. And what ends up happening is, long story short, Abner is dead. Abner is killed. Um, David's not very happy about it. David certainly didn't want that to happen. But Abner is killed. As soon as Abner is killed, what happens to Ishbosheth <laughs> in chapter 4? He's got no protection anymore, does he? And the wolves are circling. The wolves are circling. Well, he's weak. Yeah. That's, that's his problem. Yeah. He's weak and timid and yep. didn't take charge. Mm-hmm. So he was an easy target. And I want to talk too about where we're at from, from, okay, so imagine, we're going to talk about this in a minute. Imagine the kingdom of Israel. Remember, I, I usually draw this. Mediterranean, you have Israel. In the south, you have two You have two tribes. What are the two tribes of the south called? You should know this. Judah. Judah and the little one. Benjamin. Benjamin. See, you guys know this. You know this. <laughs> Two tribes of the south that they call themselves the nation of Judah or Judah, the region of Judah. And then the north, which is called what? Israel. Israel. It's confusing. But Israel, ten tribes of the north. What has happened here in the beginning of 2 Samuel is there has already been a split. You can see it. You can read it. That the people of the north seem to regard the descendants of Saul as the rightful heirs of ruling the entire country. But the people of the south, the people of Judah, regard who is their king? So here, folks, you see in our timeline, 2000 BC, this is the era of the patriarchs, 1000 BC, this is where we're at now. In just a few years, we will have a united monarchy, but that will only last for two generations. This is the united monarchy. Who, and really, I would say three, I, I guess you could probably say it was three generations. Three generations. There is a united monarchy. Mean, in some sense, all of the tribes, all 12 tribes of Israel are being ruled by the same person. Who are the three kings who rule the united monarchy in Israel? Saul, David, and see, you got it. Saul, <laughs> see, it rolls right off the tongue. Saul, David, and Solomon. That lasts until Solomon dies, and then you have a split. And for the next, and really, um, until 722 and 586, until 722, Israel, and Judah are two separate kingdoms with two separate kings. In 722, Israel falls by the Assyrians. In 586, Judah falls to the Babylonians. So really, this idea of a united monarchy does not last very long in the grand scheme of things. You have three kings who rule a united monarchy, and then you have something like two dozen that rule uh, a divided monarchy. <clears throat> But you can see here, even before David even gets going, it's, it's already divided. It's already divided. 
Why and Mephibosheth? Let's talk about him for a minute. He's Jonathan's son, so that makes him what relation to Saul? It's his grandson. Should Mephibosheth be considered as an heir, rightful heir to the throne? I think so. Absolutely. He's his grandson. Why does the author talk about Mephibosheth as being crippled? What's the, per- what's the point? Not fit for duty. That is 100% it. That is exactly it. The author wants to make sure you know there's a reason why Mephibosheth was never put on the throne. Not, not only that, it's hard to say his name. He's not fit to be king. Remember, look, this, you, know, you may not see this as fair. This is, not, this is not our judgment. This is the judgment of people 3,000 years ago. If you're lame, meaning you have a physical deformity, mental um, handicap, um, you're not fit to be king. Why? You can't go warring. The number one thing a king does is ride out into battle. Now, a lot of kings will end up sitting back on the throne, pretending that they're going out to battle. Saul kind of did this. But in general, you were expected to lead your army. You were, you were the number one warrior. But also, remember too, it was also a sign of you were a symbol of the nation. And the nation wanted a perfect human on that throne who was flawless. <clears throat> what else do you take from these, this short passage here? <clears throat> What was, and also I want to say this too. This, this, um, the the assassination of of Ishbosheth is actually very common in in um, Middle Ages art. So if you go to the great, uh, uh, you know, uh, museums of the world, the art museums of the world, and you go to the Middle Ages art, you know, painting collection. I don't know how many of you do. I love it. I sit there and I, you know, look. For, I could look for hours at this stuff, and you guys are probably like, this sucks. You know, I don't know. Uh, I think it's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, uh, but you will see a lot of art about this. This was a big topic in the Middle Ages. Why do you think this was a, a big topic in the Middle Ages? Art? No, the assassination oh. of Ishbosheth. What does that tell you about the Middle Ages and what they were thinking or afraid of? Well, it was a pretty violent time. Yeah. And they were constantly whacking each other off just like that, I guess. You never knew who was going to be coming for you next. I think art reflects the concerns and anxieties of the period. You are probably like, I had no idea we were going to talk about this stuff today. <laughs> this, is, this is way, look, I'm, you're not coming back. I get it. Um, <clears throat> but I want to talk about David's response. Again, David shows, wow, David shows a response that you may not have been expecting here. What did David do when he found out that assassins had killed the, quote, rightful, in the human's eyes, rightful heir of Saul? He was mad, Lindy. He was mad. Or at least feigned to be mad. Yeah, that's good. I like I that. I think... It was more of an act. I mean, what? he did it to, you know, show how angry he was to the followers of that particular part of Israel or mm-hmm. God's people so that they would rally behind him and not split the kingdom again. What do you know about David? Tactfully, psychologically. Very cunning. Strategic. Very cunning, very cunning. Strategic. Long-term thinker here. This is hard for people to do, think strategically. Plus, it also shows that David's like, this is not acceptable and will not happen. What it, and then what? A little self-serving. That's yeah. it. I don't want my you know, stomach stabbed in the night by one of you people. I'm going to make an example here. <clears throat> But, you know, and I think, I think cynically that's true. I also think, 
I'm naive. Like, you know I'm naive. And, and I like to believe the best in people. I do believe that part of it, too, was that David truly was, he truly believed that the, the institution of the kingship was God's and God's alone to decide what to do with. I think when you see him having the opportunity several times to kill Saul, and he didn't, he could have. And, he, and, and to the cunning point, he could have spun that a hundred different ways and been okay with it, all right? He, you know, even his closest advisor said, you should kill Saul. You have the opportunity. You could sneak into his camp tonight and cut the guy's head off, and he didn't. Um, I think there is something to that. What do you think? Am I wrong? Tell me. I, I can be wrong. I think he had to have gotten his man after God's heart title somehow. Yes. I mean, it's, he's not just a, you know, adulterer, you know, adulterer, <laughs> and he's not just that. There's have to be other parts of him, so there have to be redeeming qualities. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay. <coughs> well, I'm late, to, chapter, yeah. I'm late to the conversation, but I, you know, <coughs> David did a bunch of goofy stuff and dumb things and stuff that we would consider against against God, against yep. His will, and yet He still every time. I mean, I look at my life and go, "There's a list, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's a pile of garbage, mm-hmm. but I still trust Him. I still follow. I still." You know, do my best. It's not about uh, trying to act the part, because I spent okay. many years acting the part. Yep. Trying to prove everybody, prove to <coughs> everybody that I was, I was that man after God's heart. <coughs> and <coughs> half the time I'm not. Okay. You know, but I could it could still be said of me that that I am. You know, overall, generally speaking. And how would you classify yourself or others as someone after God's own heart? Coming back to it, you know, allowing his grace to flourish in my life, I guess. Okay. What else? This is important, and I think if anyone ever does watch this video, or you have the opportunity to tell others, what does it mean to be someone after God's own heart? What would you tell them? Regardless of your outward circumstances and where you are, that God's got it. No matter. There's just a sense of, I guess, joy. Okay. Okay. I'd say accepting, accepting His forgiveness for what it is, and 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 allowing myself then to continue to live instead of just piling on the shame. Yep. And hiding, putting on the. The, the fig leaf yep and going and hiding I love it I mean it is what it is he, yep. he's forgiven us accept it or not yep. you know I'll cheat and use Jesus words uh, seek, <laughs> seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness I love it <laughs> yep. yeah I think he always did seek try Okay, maybe not always. <laughs> he, you know, I mean, he's human, so he tried to seek God's counsel in his actions, I think, in most cases. How many of us can derive true inner peace from whoever has been elected 
the leader of our government. Tell me. Bless your heart. You can drive true peace. Who has been elected? been under bad leaders I've been under good leaders and you just have to accept the good along with the bad and just know ah, I see where you're going with this it's not the leader it's the fact that you have peace no matter who is elected I, I haven't always been like that. yeah okay but I think more today okay um, I've, I was just telling Gary she's like which way do you think it's gonna go I'm like either mm -hmm. way it doesn't matter mm -hmm. I mean it's gonna be Trump it's gonna be Biden mm -hmm. and uh, served under both so I could really easily get myself wrapped around the axle and get excited about where the direction of the country's going. But the fact of the matter is, we have no control over that. And you just have to let it go and just know that God's got this. God put Pontius Pilate in charge. Mm -hmm. He had the authority to take his life or not take his life. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> How many of you have true inner peace because you know you're a cosmic accident? Nobody. You're just an accident, Lorna. Well, I'm a Gemini, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I'm an Aquarius or a Pisces, depending on which newspaper I read. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm serious. You know, the universe just happened to exist. Uh, all of this, all of you are not special. The Earth is nothing special. Um, you're just an accident. You're just existing. Uh, <clears throat> Only natural forces govern our existence, and one day you will cease to exist, and that's the end of it. How many of you draw total solace from that? See how Zero. sarcastic I am on this one. Zero. You know, I was just talking to my daughter the other day. I said, you know what? How bad do we feel for those people that don't have God, that don't have some foundation mm -hmm. to, to, like, weigh everything against. That's it. If everything's just willy-nilly, whatever, it doesn't matter. There is no God. There's no moral truth. There's no right and wrong. How miserable of a life. Yep. Just making your own way. Just. Well, my dad was in World War II, mm -hmm. and he said, you give the enemy an inch, they'll take a mile. Yep. And I believe that's true. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's what's happened in our country. But the enemy, I think, is within. There's a saying, you know, Russia said they could take over the United States without firing a shot. I was thinking they this past week. It could yep. be taken from the outside, only from the end. I, I want to expand on what you're saying, Lorna. And I'm not going to go down this path. Look, uh, I, the only thing I want to say is it, it's true. Um, if you look back at the history of the United States, again, the world has always been corrupt. So make no mistake about it. It's not like all of a sudden it's corrupt now. Um, <clears throat> You know, if you look at the history of the United States and its Cold War, for those of you who are old enough to remember all of that, um, <clears throat> who was the number one enemy of the people of the United States from roughly 1945 to 1991? Russia. The Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, who became the number one enemy of the United States? You... You will find human psychology to be as predictable as the universe and the planets that orbit the sun. Without a common enemy, we will find a common enemy. And who becomes the common enemy in the late 1990s until the modern time? We shifted to the Middle East. We'll find someone, but I would even argue that even that is not as big of an enemy <clears throat> now as what Lorna is getting at. 
Who is the biggest enemy to you when you sign on to Facebook in the morning? Is it the Middle East? Is it Russia? Who is it? Internally, others. Your own <laughs> internal battle. people. You want names? No. <laughs> Yeah. Your own people. You, you will find an enemy, folks. Well, and it, it might be from within. The New Testament, folks, probably oh. the second half of the New Testament, the, the Catholic epistles, you would call them, um, the, the pastoral epistles of, of Paul, are all about taking guard against the wolf that is in sheep's clothing within your own midst. That is your biggest enemy to the New Testament church. That's our biggest enemy. The people who parade around pretend, and again, I'm, again, we're going way off on, t- on tangent here, but it's important. <clears throat> we have to watch out for the people who masquerade as beings of light. <clears throat> I know who it was now. Yes. That young guy, um, the Paul. Um, Timothy. Huh? Timothy? Timothy, <clears throat> yeah, that's who it was. Somebody was instructing Timothy, was it Paul? Instructing him, telling him, to stay strong yeah. because there would be people come in. Yeah. I can't think Let's, of it, how it's worded. I think it's easy to, like I was saying before, you wrap around the axle, you look at the, the debt that we have, mm-hmm. you look at the impending doom, you know, you got this the biggest cyber attack that happened, you know, and they think it was Russia that did it, and how much information did they get, we don't know. Yeah. Um, we have, uh, all this stuff that's pulling and buying for our attention, and really they're just all big distractions. And did you hear what happened now? And so it's like you can wear yourself out thinking that, man, this is the end. This is the beginning of the end. And the fact of the matter is, we've been at end <coughs> times since for two thousand years. Right. And that, that's why I said, where where is your trust? If you're going to trust in the government to save it, <laughs> you better keep looking. How many hours a day do you spend reading yeah. <laughs> the Word of God? How many? Tell me. Average. Less than an hour. <laughs> Less, than Less than an hour? That's pretty good. If that's the <laughs> real answer, Angela, that's pretty darn good. How about a week? How many hours per week do you spend reading the Word of God? Not including this class. Bless your hearts. How many hours a week do you spend on social media consuming garbage? How many hours a week do you spend whatever news media outlet you want, I will not name names, consuming garbage? I think, folks, you can tell a tree by its fruit, and you will become what you are immersed in. This is the baptizo. You are baptized. You are a cucumber that is soaking in vinegar and salt and sugar. What do you become? Pickle. A pickle. (laughs) Whatever you are pickled in is what you become. If you... Uh, immerse yourself in the Holy Scriptures, you will understand righteousness and have true peace. <clears throat> if you baptize yourself in garbage, you will become garbage, no matter how righteous you are. All right. Let's go ahead and read chapter 5. This is great. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. My eyes, 5. 1 to 25. Who would like to read that for me? I can read that. Thank you, ma'am. <clears throat> All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Why are your own flesh and blood? We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. 
When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David could not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. <coughs> On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a place, palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elaphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As water breaks out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. <clears throat> so David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. You did great. That was, it was like you were an expert. Uh, you know, shalom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mazel tov. You did, it. Yeah. you did a great job. What, what, an, <laughs> what an awesome passage. To, I'm going to shut up. What do you all take from this? That's kind of like what we were just talking about. Huh? The Lord goes before us. Yeah. And I think that's where we put our trust in, in God. That he's got this no matter what is going to happen. Yeah. Because we're, we're already living in a fallen world. We know that what the enemy's going to be. We read your Bible. Um, that he has this, and that there's going to be a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and just everything's going to be great. There's going to be no more tears, and that's where we got to put hope and trust, mm -hmm. and uh, and not worry about what goes on around us. Just do our best. I mean, you look at what uh, Noah did, what he had to go through for you know while building the, the ark. He was the only one 
Uh, all the people in the world, he's the only one in all this family that were saved. And, uh, <clears throat> How do you think Noah felt on year 89? <laughs> yeah. It's like, is this really? Good? I mean, but how faithful is that? Yeah. How faithful was he to do that in being jeered at and being made fun of and not a cloud in the sky or whatever? And, I don't know, I he was probably trying to preach, too, while he was building that ark, trying to get people to... How many of you have felt fruitless with your evangelism? <laughs> what do you say? How many of you felt fruitless? How many of you have felt like you're sharing, you're reading the Bible, and you're praying every day, and you're telling people about the Word? You feel like it's 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 not worth it. How many of you? How awesome is this? I love that. Thank you. For sharing that, that's great. That's a, that is the perfect analogy, I think, Roger. Mm-hmm. What else do you take from this? You know, in spite of uh, all of David's <coughs> strong points, he still clearly had some weak ones that yep. weren't in line with mm-hmm. what God commanded. Like what? For those of us who don't know, all the wives and concubines <laughs> yeah. he was taking, yep. God never authorized any. <coughs> He picked up the idols, too. Yeah, right. I refer you to Deuteronomy 17. 17. We'll read that sometime. <laughs> what else? He was anointed again. Yeah? <laughs> like I stuck out to me. That, yeah. Uh, and anointed. And, and again, um, you know, it goes both ways. God is anointing him, but also the people are kind of recognizing that he's the guy yeah. now. The guy. Let's talk about Jerusalem for a minute. <clears throat> I, I worked hard on this one. So you can't say anything bad about it. Um, I'm kidding. So imagine this is Jerusalem. Here is the city walls. I've drawn for, for perspective, this is Jerusalem of the first century AD. So this is the time of Jesus. This is the Jerusalem that Jesus knew. You have this large city, probably a couple hundred thousand people living there. Um, much more during the Passover. <clears throat> So it's a big city. You have the Temple Mount. This is the temple complex. In in Herod's day, this was the biggest temple in the world, folks. I, I think if you are a student of Greek or Roman history, and you or you've been to the, the Mediterranean and you see these fantastic things like the Parthenon. The Parthenon, how many of you have seen that? It's is it small? <laughs> it's wouldn't it be great if Pathway was that big, right? My gosh, it's it is gigantic. The temple complex that Herod built for the Jews dwarfed it. I think (laughs) it's hard to wrap your head around that. So imagine this gigantic temple complex. That's not even the whole city. You have Herod's palace, the Praetorium, or the governor's residence, the Antonia Fortress. This little thing right here that looks like a weird tree, that's the Gihon Spring. This is the thing that waters Jerusalem. At least it was until the first century, and then they brought in extra water. But... um, this little this was not there in the time of David. That's what I'm getting at. <clears throat> During the time of David, we think this tiny sliver on the edge of a mountain is what we call the city of David in, in the 10th, 11th century BC. So this was David's Jerusalem, this tiny little thing, but it meant a lot to him. Why did it mean a lot to him? Why was this so important to David? Think about its location. Think about... Um, its history. 
What do we know has happened here? You can be, just say something, you're probably right. Does that have anything to do with Melchizedek? Um, Melchizedek was from Salem. Ding, you get your first point. He was priest of Salem, right? Priest of, of God in Salem. Salem, yep, another name for Jerusalem. It's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. What else? Who remembers the story of uh, Isaac? <clears throat> Abraham and Isaac. Is there a well there? The well is near here, but there was a more important... Uh, what is the biblical story of the man who's going to sacrifice his son because God said to sacrifice him? Tell me that story. Up, in a, up on a hill. Yeah. It's going to kill. Found a goat. <laughs> this is Mount Moriah. Mm. <clears throat> where the sacrifice was supposed to take place. Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. Today, the, the, um, the Muslims have the Dome of the Rock built on the very spot, which today we know is where the old Jewish temple was, it's no mistake. Um, but it, they, they call it that because that's Mount Moriah. <clears throat> this is Mount Zion. What else do you gain? So here we have the Hinnom Valley, we have the Kidron Valley, and this is all kind of on a big mountain. What does that mean strategically? I'm looking at the Army guy. Oh, Air Force guy. <laughs> Air Force. Yeah. Air Force. He doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Our country. At a vantage point. This is a great strategic location. Why? It's really hard to attack this. If you're an army coming up this valley, and again, I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures. I mean, you're talking 40, 50, 60 feet up. You've got to come up the valley, and then there's a wall. Good luck with that, if you've got axes. That's why the occupants were so cocky. They were, dude. They were like, you ain't taking this place. They forgot about the water holes. Oops. <laughs> the water tunnels. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what scholars think happened, that these, that these tunnels used to collect the water of the Gihon Spring were the ones in which David's men snuck into. There's a lot of different debate about what this means. Was it over the wall? Was it under it? We don't know, but he took it. We're, we're sure that he took it and it was fairly easy. So this becomes his city. It's also strategically placed. If you, if you remember Hebron, Hebron is in the south. Hebron is very far south in Israel. Um, <clears throat> Jerusalem is much more centrally located, especially between the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. This is a great place to have your capital. So quick history lesson. This is one of the oldest cities on earth, founded at least in 3000 BC. We know it's, it, it was around because Egyptian texts mention it many times over the millennia. <clears throat> Jebusites take it around 1800 and build the wall, which would in this time would have been this little wall right here. Now taken by David, and now it is his capital city. City of Zion, the Mount of Zion. Um, the Philistines. Yep. He lived among the Philistines for a while. So, what do you think that's going to go over like? <laughs> well, I'm just wondering if that's where they rose up against him because, hey, hmm? he's, he's established himself now as king. So, I don't know. I think that's part of the, the reason why they came against him. Because didn't, they, didn't he swear himself? To the king of the Philistines. Yeah, Achish. And then Achish says, sorry, dude. What did, what did Achish say? Well, he wanted him to go back because the, the rest of the Philistine 
commanders and kings didn't trust him. They didn't trust him. Should they have? <laughs> no. <laughs> it looks like Akish was the dumb one here. You're right. The others are like, dude, he is an Israelite. He is the anointed king. No matter how much you think he's on your side right now, he's not. It turns out they were right. He becomes the king, and we're not exactly sure. This is probably a few years after all that. So he reigned for seven and a half years in Hebron. Now, at least, it's been seven and a half years since all that battle with Saul. Um, time, time doesn't heal <laughs> any wounds, does it? They're, they're ticked. And they're going to attack him. And why are they attacking him now? Why this huge assault right now? But normally, when a new king comes to power, there's a little bit of chaos. Yes. I mean, look at what's going on in our government yep. right now. You've got yep. old coming going out, yep. the new coming in. Mm-hmm. Nobody, the new people really don't know what their jobs yep. are or how to do them yet. You're going to have the same thing in a smaller scale there. You always attack your enemy when there's a change in power. Always. Because things are in flux. They are at their weakest. And they're not just attacking once. They attack at least two years in a row. I love this part. God, David goes to God and says, should I attack? First of all, he's asking God for his input. And then God says what? Don't go straight up a circle around them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, what is that Wouldn't referring that to? Be eerie to hear the marching on, you know, they're close. Trees. Angels. Angels. Angels, what else? What happens to trees when they rustle? What do you hear? Great wind. How many of us have read the Old Testament? God is is sometimes referred to as a great what? Warrior. The power of God is he's a warrior, but he manifests himself how? As a great wind, as a storm. Thunder and lightning. Remember all of this from, from the days of Elijah and Elisha? Great rustling of the wind. How awesome is that to hear the sound of God marching ahead of you to defeat your enemies? I love that part. would be nice to get a clear uh, guidance like that like David <laughs> right, was kidding yeah. or you know yep. I mean and yep. we can get it you know but and maybe it's just because we're reading this but I, I, I don't know does David hear a voice is it just a intuition you know that's telling him what to do that's God speaking to him that way or how uh, I wish I could uh, as clearly say nope this is the answer I heard. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my pointed advice here, and you'll, you'll probably never come back. Uh, <laughs> this is probably the last time. Um, many times in the Old Testament, God's response is referred to as the wind speaks. The human ear will hear a noise like wind or roaring, thunder. Um, but in their mind, they'll hear very clearly what God is trying to tell them. I'm going to be honest to you, and this is really weird that I share this. I, I, I heard him speak while you were speaking this morning. He told me something personally that I was thinking about this morning. And it was crystal clear. Um, I want to teach you all to listen to God because he does talk to you every day if you're willing to listen. Um, <clears throat> the problem is, first, we don't do our part to read and ask. That's the first thing. Second thing we do even less well is to listen for a response. 
I want you to practice for the next 30 seconds. We're going to do this. I want you to go to God in prayer right now. And I want you to empty your mind. And I know each, each and every one of you has something on their mind that you are concerned about. So we'll start with something you're concerned about. Because that seems to be the thing that people pray the most about is their needs and their wishes. Think about, for a minute, something you're struggling with. <clears throat> Maybe it's a job issue. Maybe it's an uh, interpersonal issue. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your parents. <clears throat> Maybe it's the upcoming holidays. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's your faith. Got it? Okay. Now we're going to spend the next 30 to 60 seconds, and you're going to go to God in prayer. And what I want you to do is to say this. Dear God, I'm struggling with my faith. Whatever. Please tell me what you want me to do about it. Tell me what I should do. And for the next 60 seconds, I just want you to focus as hard as you possibly can on what you think the answer is that you're hearing. Let's do it right now. again. He just said it again, what I asked earlier. He does answer you. He does. It was crystal clear to me. Maybe it takes practice for you. I don't know. It took practice for me to listen, to understand. And what's cool is, so you go to God in prayer, <coughs> you, you, you ask God, and you follow his instruction. And then the, the next thing is you give glory to God when it, when it happens. You know, that has to be all three of these yep. things. You don't get credit at the that's end. That's it. You give God the credit and give God the glory. And every instance that you see David having success, he's done those three things every single time. Yep. I love that, Steve. I've told people time and again, God is not a vending machine. He's not there to give you your Funyuns when you want Funyuns. <laughs> He's there so that you will glorify him and that you will become a more mature Christian in preparation for eternity. Folks, this world is not our home. It's not. Roger, you are being prepared for eternity, and sometimes it's going to suck. Angela, you are being prepared for eternity. Nicole. <laughs> Medical school. And being a physician will last for a couple of decades, a few decades, and then it will be over. But guess what? Eternity is eternity. And medical school isn't the important thing. Eternity is the important thing with your creator. And sometimes you don't get the answer you want. Sometimes you get an answer, and God answers your prayer. And then you have to say, the reason he did that was so I could glorify him. When God answers my prayers, I tell people about it. 
There are people in this room who have miracles have happened because of prayer. And God needs to be glorified for that, for all eternity. God needs to be glorified. That was the point. Not that he gave you what you wanted because you pushed the Funyun button. Because he gave it to you out of love and mercy to prepare you for eternity so you could be a disciple of Jesus and tell the world about him. Who knew this would be such a deep class? I had no idea <laughs> things would get so deep. I, I just want to stop. We're not going to do six, obviously. What else? What, what last things do we want to talk about here? One thing, one thing that I, and I've forgotten this, <clears throat> but every once in a while it'll come to my mind that I should, can, get to, ask God, what do you want me to pray about? Instead of, because I, I can go to him with my agenda, but if I ask him for his agenda, then it's easier to hear from him too. You know, if I hear, pray about this, ask for this, talk to me about this, then his answer is going to be a lot easier to hear as well. Ken, I don't want you to keep asking me about your leg. I, I'm just pretending this is God. <laughs> I want you to ask me about how you can share the gospel with others. Again, making this totally up. Yeah. I, I get it. I think that's true. He's like, your question <clears throat> illustrates where your mind is, and maybe I don't want your mind in that place. I, <clears throat> I'll give an example. Um, there was a, so I went through a, I went to some, a couple different John Eldridge mm-hmm. um, Wild at Heart retreats. And one of them, one of the sessions was, was spiritual warfare. Yeah. And the, the model was to go get in the group and ask, ask God, who do you want us to pray for? In the whole group of people, of men that were in the group. So we did that and had great success, and it was amazing how, you know, what, one of the things was, was, you know, we'd pray, who, do we, who, do, who are we praying for? We didn't even know these guys, didn't know anybody's names. And, uh, you know, people are like, I keep hearing the name Billy. And there's nobody named Billy in the group, and somebody says, yeah, I, I'm hearing Bill. The other guy says, I'm just seeing this little red wagon, this boy pulling this little red wagon down the sidewalk in front of this little picket fence. And all of a sudden, this guy, William, in the group says, he goes, they called me Billy as a little boy, and I had a picket fence in my yard, and I had a little red wagon. We're like, I guess it's you, so we put him <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> so then we started. So then it was ask God, what do we want to pray about? And it came out that this guy had um, pornography issues, and it was a stronghold. <clears throat> so long story short, it got to the point where I was ticked because I didn't get a chance to be in, we called it being in the barrel. And so I, <clears throat> we had an option one afternoon. In the free time it was watch a movie, go sit in the hot tub, go to the climbing wall, go to the ropes course, whatever it was. And we're sitting there kind of our, as our bunk mates and I said, <clears throat> I, said I, really wanna, I really want you guys to pray for me. And they said, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, you guys really want to spend your free time this afternoon doing this. So we go back to our bunkhouse, and everybody starts asking God, what do we, what do you want us to pray for? And like five or six of the guys, they're like, poverty. I just, there's this poverty thing, this, this, you know, and that's what they kept hearing. What's, you know, what's going on, Ken? What's this, what's about this poverty? And... You know, poverty mindset. I grew up poor. We raised our own food. We didn't ever have any money. 
Um, and it was just this mindset, this, this, this stronghold, if you will, of poverty that was my life. Mm -hmm. And so we started praying for it. <clears throat> I felt it physically. When, once, I, once I, and this goes a little next level here, but once <laughs> I said, you know, by the blood of Jesus, I command you to leave. And I, my arm stretched out to the side, and I physically felt yep. that demon, that stronghold, that possession, if you will, physically leave my body. And it was because we listened, because we asked. Instead of just saying, oh, I think Ken, you know, needs to get in better physical condition or, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever we can come up with, God knows. God knows what's holding us back. And that's what he wants to cleanse, clean us of. It's that garbage. And it's, I mean, it's a powerful thing when you, and I, I, I'm so far removed from living that way now. I don't do that now. Like, I need more work, you know. I need to stretch my dollar. I need my kids to be obedient. I come up with all this good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. But it's not the stuff. Yeah. Let's end on that. That was awesome. I hope you come back next week. Well, I will say this. Christmas, Easter, um, times when you are engaged with focusing on your creator will be the times in which the devil will put the biggest target on your back. Be prepared this week. Pray more for what not only the struggles and challenges you will, you will face, but the opportunities you will have this week to share the gospel with others and to live this. This is it, folks. This is it right here. Let's figure out how we can live this. All right. We'll see you next week. I will be here. Have a Merry Christmas. <laughs>